Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 342, Interview with Jack Fairweather, about his book, A Rebel in Auschwitz. Jack Fairweather is a former war reporter in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the author of A War of Choice and The Good War. Today's discussion is about Witold Pilecki, a Polish resistance fighter who purposefully allowed himself to be arrested to get into Auschwitz. So, Mr. Fairweather, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. So, this was an absolutely incredible story. I know you've been talking about it for a while, about uh, Witold Pilecki, but correct me if I'm wrong, this wasn't actually widely known in the Western world until recently. That's one of the incredible things about Pilecki's story. As soon as you hear what he did, the man who volunteered for a mission to Auschwitz, um, you immediately think, well, got to know about that story, because <laughs> how could anyone not know about something so extraordinary? And right. thing is that Pilecki, um, his, his record was lost, hidden away, obscured um, after the war. And so it as you say, it wasn't until 2012 that mm-hmm. his report about his activities in the camp was finally translated into English, and that was how indeed I came across um, came came across him. And I just had that idea. This, you know, that man who volunteered for Auschwitz read this report, and I thought, wow, this is a story that simply has to be told more widely. Right, because um, and and this is going to sound morbidly. Weird, but I guess for people like me who are World War II buffs, um, there are, I guess, there is new information coming out um, all the time uh, for different reasons. And this is certainly one of those examples. The, and I think people have to remember that the uh, end of World War II was obviously followed very close upon by the Cold War. Uh, politics changed, everybody's point of view changed. And so I could see how for the new masters of Poland, um, an independent spirit like this, a brave spirit like this, well, you you would want to keep that hushed up. Well, it's, it's worth saying at the outset, uh, Ray, that Witold Pilecki was um, a Polish underground officer um, and that he had fought against the Nazis with this, through this extraordinary mission to Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the end of the war, having survived the survived the camp, he, like every Pole, um, was confronted by a new horror, which was the communist takeover of his country by Soviet forces. I think for a lot of us um, in the West, we think about the end of World War II, May 1945, as victory parades and Mm -hmm. confessing streets. But it's, um, it's really worth remembering that for most of Central and Eastern Europe, this was just the start of a new form of occupation, one that was to last for decades and decades. And Pilecki was caught up in this uh, communist takeover. He fought against the the Soviets in Poland and was captured and executed and all trace of his wartime records hidden away um, until the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989. And that allowed the slow rediscovery of his legacy um, in the in the following years in Poland. But then, it, as we said, it wasn't until 2012 that one of those reports, um, his main one about his mission to Auschwitz, was finally translated. Um, so it's been it's been a really long journey, and you know, for me, there's a real deep 
irony in the way his message was lost twice. First of all, he was in Auschwitz telling the Allies what was happening in the camp, calling on them to take action. Those reports reached London, they reached the Allied commanders, but they didn't take action and his voice was not listened to. And then in the afterwar years, when we in the West were celebrating our great heroes of World War II, no one in Poland even knew about this guy other than his immediate family and friends. And, you know, we couldn't hear his voice again. We couldn't celebrate what he, his great bravery in the camp. So that was really my hope in approaching the story and was to try and help us all hear this, the voice of this extraordinary man. Absolutely. And I want to drill down into something you just said. And I am sure you have heard this metaphor a million times since you've um, since you've been talking about uh, Vitold. So, you know, you can't help but compare this true, courageous hero with like heroes we see in the movies. You know, they make tough choices. They head into danger to take care of the average uh, person on the street. But we know that that's fake. No one's really in danger. And I could not get over and you and you stress this in your book. I mean, Vitold literally goes against all the hard wiring in our brains um, from, you know, evolution Everything that we do to, to try to survive, everything decision that we make try to, to survive, and he purposefully heads into a camp that he knows at the very least is, is dangerous, um, and there's a chance that he might not come out, and yet he makes that very decision. I think for me that question of what would make someone risk everything um, for, you know, for such a mission mm-hmm. was really one of my sort of prompts to begin research, I really felt like I needed to know the answer to that question because if we can understand what drove Paletsky, you know, that can inspire us in our, in our own lives to to do courageous things. And I think one of the one of the most striking things I found out in the beginning about Paletsky wasn't that he was this superhuman figure who was just going around doing courageous things left, mm-hmm. right, and center. In fact, before World War II, he was actually a pretty ordinary guy living as a farmer in eastern Poland. He was a father of two kids. He was a devout Catholic, going to the mm-hmm. church, painting a couple of murals on the walls, and um, a reserve officer in the Polish cavalry, uh, training up some of the the other local farmers. Um, and, you know, very decent, well-meaning man, um, but not someone whom... Was seemed to be marked out for greatness, and so I wanted to really understand what it was about um, the events of World War II, what it was about the the, the hardwiring, as you put, inside Paletsky that allowed him to hold to his moral compass and to furthermore take that step into the extraordinary um, that began his mission to Auschwitz, and so. Um, I'm a reporter by background, Ray, so I have a few ways <laughs> doing that. And that's, you know, I like to speak to everyone I can find who knew Paletsky to ask them, you know, tell me about this guy. What was he, was he like? Um, I wanted to go to the places that Paletsky had been to and just try and envision, um, you know, where he had done these great acts of of courage. And then, of course, I wanted to dig down into the archives for all every trace of a, a record that could give a clue to it. And um, 
sometimes everything all comes together, uh, Ray. And that was the case with the moment when Paletsky begins his mission to Auschwitz um, and um, took place in an apartment in Warsaw in the Zollibosch district of the city. And the apartment belonged to Paletsky's sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And he learned through the underground that there was going to be a German roundup in the area and all military age men would be rounded up and sent to Auschwitz. And so he arranged for himself uh, to sit in that apartment, uh, um, knowing that um, in a few hours' time the Germans would be coming. And Berski writes about this moment very briefly in his report. He just says that um, there's only a few people alive today who witnessed me um, begin uh, my mission. Uh, yeah. As it turns out, there was um, one of those witnesses was still alive when I began researching. Um, wow. and the little boy of his sister-in-law, Vitor's nephew, called Marek, who mm. was three years old um, at, the, at, um, at the time of this roundup. And I met up with um, met up with Marek and brought him to this apartment, which still exists in central Warsaw. And right took him inside and Marek hadn't been back for many, many years after the war. And he w- was able to distantly remember the moment when the Germans banged on the door and being back in the apartment gave him this sudden memory that he had been in his bed, terrified by all the bangs and the shouts and, um, and entering. And he dropped his, teddy bear on the floor and um Marek remembered it was his sort of main memory of this moment that mm. Pelletti, just as the germans came into the apartment had handed him back his teddy bear and you know that for me really spoke to something very special about Pelletsky. it seemed to show how even in moments of great drama when you think he must only be thinking about himself right. he wasn't was thinking about that little boy in his bed looking scared and worried and he handed him that teddy bear and that for me gave me my first clue about what it was about Paletsky that allowed him to do such extraordinary things in the camp this ability to look beyond himself in moments of extraordinary stress but but I have I have to add, um you said a second ago that it, the part about him waiting for the Germans is a very small part of his notes because it wasn't about him it was about the wider context it was about his family it was about Poland in general he you know he loved Poland and he and he was a patriot um, but let's drill down a little further to be brave let's say like you're you're chasing a bad guy who's stolen someone's purse I don't know it's something physical it's something active and you and you can act on that fear or anger or whatever, but here's someone who is literally sitting down waiting for the terror of the known world to come and pick him up. So even in that sense, it's a, it's a pretty impressive form of bravery, of courage, just to know I'm, I'm purposefully waiting for the jaws of this trap to close in on me. Yes. Well, maybe we should, we should back up mm-hmm. uh, Ray, for your listeners and just to set the scene a little bit. Please. Um, World War II began in September 1939 with the 
German and Soviet um, invasion of Poland. Hitler mm. agreed to divide up Poland, and that led then to Germany and France declaring declaring war, but really not much happening in the first year of the war, other than the brutal occupation of Poland. Um, Germany had seized the capital, Warsaw, and a good chunk of the rest of the country. And Hitler had decided that Poland was going to become a slave state to the German Reich. That meant that any Polish leaders had to be eliminated or locked up and the rest of the country turn into chattels to serve um, to serve the new German overlords. And of mm. course, we know about Hitler's racial vision in which uh, the, the Germans, the Germanic people were the top and pretty much everyone else was to be either eliminated over time or to become slaves. And so Polsky, he had... Um, been called up as a reserve officer in the Polish cavalry to fight the Germans. Polish military had been devastated by the Blitzkrieg and surrendered. And Pileski become a um, gone to Warsaw to join um, the underground, the start of the resistance. And this was a really, you know, brutal time. It, it's still for me extraordinary to say that. 50,000 Polish nationals were killed in the first few months of the occupation, um, rounded up from streets, right. teachers, lawyers, anyone from the professional classes um, shot um, who they thought might uh, be a danger to the new order. And, of course, this is the beginning of the discrimination against Poland's very large Jewish community. Jews were to wear stars of David and the ghettos being formed in certain certain towns. Um, the Polish underground had no real capacity at this stage to mount any open warfare against the Germans. Instead, they they believed that their mission was to tell the outside world what was happening in Poland. Um, they wanted Germany and France to take action. Um, Britain and France. Uh, Britain and France. Mm -hmm. uh, this stage, of course, America was not in the fight. That wasn't; didn't, they didn't join until the end of 1941. Um, in May 1940, the Germans opened a concentration camp in Poland, especially for Polish nationals, um, a place to lock up any potential troublemakers. Mm -hmm. This camp was called Auschwitz, and it was in the south of the country, outside a small town called Oswinchim. Polish Underground needed to know what was happening in that camp. There's some reports of brutality and uh, atrocities had, were filtering to Warsaw. And so they turned to Poletsky and said, uh, would you volunteer for this mission to get yourself arrested and sent to Auschwitz? And um, yeah, so I mean, that's that's kind of where the story begins. Um, you know, Polesky doesn't put his hand up and say, pick me, um, <laughs> perhaps um, the title volunteer suggests. I think just getting back to this sort of human heart to the story to Polesky, um, you know, he really struggled with this decision. Um, he had... Um, 
during the the invasion, he'd left his wife and looking after their two small kids. He'd just been re- reunited with the family. They survived all of all of the bloodshed and the immediate occupation. Um, and he was now sort of looking after them. He had his underground cell in Warsaw, these young men that he had taken under his wing. He didn't want to leave them behind. Um, and so he really struggled with this decision. And in fact, there was a roundup in Warsaw, which he had le- learned of, where he could have got himself arrested, but he, he, he missed it because he was struggling with this decision. Um, sure. And but then in the end, I think he came to this realization that the war was going very badly for Poland. The occupation was killing thousands of people. Um, There was no hope unless people like him could try and raise awareness and get the allies to act. And I think that was one of the reasons why he felt this call to duty, this call of patriotism for Poland, mm-hmm. for family and his friends, that he knew he had to do something, even as crazy as getting himself arrested and sent to Auschwitz. Right. And again, that just flies in the face of everything we think of um, when you think of survival and also over the years. You know, you hear so many stories about Auschwitz and then this guy, and then you, you know, not until 2012 do you hear this guy voluntarily uh, went in there, and so he's going to go in there. He wants to expose what's going on, um, what's going on at the camp, because he's somehow thinking that the British and the French, and maybe eventually, the Americans will do something. Um, I don't know if that's naivete on his part, but I mean, he, he didn't have too many options. He's got he's got to do something, and I'm guessing letting the outside world know what's going on is a big first step to somebody making a change to the situation. Right. I mean, at, at this stage. Britain and France, it was a period of the war called the Phony War in which oh, right. they were sort of sitting back, um, you know, they declared war on on Germany because of its occupation of Poland, but then they weren't themselves ready to sort of launch ground offensives against Germany. So it was a little sparring in, with an air war, but nothing, mm-hmm. nothing serious and i think the polish concern was that if they did nothing then perhaps the status quo would just continue and hitler would end up the you know lord of poland uh, in perpetuity which was just you know impossible for anyone to really contemplate who was living inside poland at that time living through this very dark and desperate time and you know i think that was um, that was one of the reasons why Pilecki felt he had to do something. Um, there was another reason, which was, I think, that really shone through in talking to men and women who had fought alongside Pilecki. Uh, he was someone who could really inspire the confidence of others. He had a, a very rare ability, I think, to trust people, and that made them trust him and was why he... In his cell in the underground, he was the recruiter in chief. He had a very good sense of who had who had what it took to be um, an underground officer, and um, and so he felt that he could perhaps do that job in Auschwitz because it would take something special in Auschwitz to create an underground. 
This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. I'm glad you brought that up because as I'm going through your book, it's quite clear that one, his number one objective is to just try to get the people in the camp to survive as long as they can. Two, he does say to these people, you can trust me. I want to look out for you. But like you were mentioning a second ago, he does have this belief in other people's ability. I, I'm I'm sure he was exuding whether you want to call it leadership or whatever else that made people want to risk their lives for him and also to trust him at the same time. And as we're going to find out in, in Auschwitz, trusting someone normally is the beginning of the end of your existence. Right. So Kalecki arrives a couple of days after his arrest mm -hmm. in Auschwitz. And it's September 21st, 1940. Um, we've been packed into a cattle cart since dawn. There'd been a 10-hour journey down to uh, camp and no water, no food, stuffed in with the other prisoners and then uh, dragged out, beaten, kicked, people shot around him. Um, so he deliberately created this brutal reception to the camp to disorientate prisoners and to make them more submissive. And um, it, basically, it basically worked. Um, Paleski himself des describes this shock of, of arrival that lasted for you know, days afterwards. For some prisoners, it lasted, you know, for as long as they did. In, mm -hmm. in, and um, prisoners were stripped and shaved and given striped prison garments and numbers and places of their name. And, um, you know, I think Paletsky realized that his sort of big mission to report on Nazi crimes and perhaps even stage a breakout from the camp um, were going to be um, very difficult to achieve. But in fact, his first task was just to try and survive in the camp. And um, that's, I think every prisoner who did survive Auschwitz has a bit of luck. And that was the case with Paletsky. Um, he'd been um, some days in the camp doing these brutal military drill exercises mm -hmm. in which he was spent eight hours a day doing push-ups and squats and and he was on the edge of collapse which 
um, would have meant getting beaten to death by some of the German functionaries who were waiting for prisoners to collapse to do just that. Right. Happened to see a, a, um, a, a German functionary running past and he stepped forward to meet the man almost on a whim. And the man said to him, are you a stove fitter? Um, and unless he wasn't, uh, but of course he just said, yes, I, yes, I have this he had to do something, and the guy said, right, great, come with me. And he had a few days then um, in an SS man's apartment outside the camp fitting a stove, which he had to learn how to do very quickly, quickly right. job. And that gave him a sort of a breather and a chance to collect himself and, um, and allow him to sort of reconnect with his, with his mission and I think from that point on, he begins um, recruiting uh, for the first first time, and that's when he is able to have the strength and the wherewithal to reach out to other prisoners and tell them about the secret of the underground. Um, the f- I, um, Polisky doesn't write about um, recruiting um, the camp. Um, but I was able to find the testimony of one of his very first recruits, a guy called Konstanty Piekarski. Mm-hmm. And I um, really like the moment that he describes because of its sort of brutal honesty. Um, the prisoners after their day of punishment exercises and hard labor in the camp were able to gather for a short while uh, for curfew in the outside and uh, Piekarski describes how Paletsky comes up to him, takes him by the arm, and um, leads him away from the other prisoners. It's about a week into the camp, so they've been on limited food and right. you know, just really punishing work. And Paletsky reveals to Con the, or Constanti, Con for short, um, the secret of the underground and Constanti looks at him and says are you crazy look <laughs> we are in to, right to fight back against the Germans um and um you know, Balecki, at this stage the underground is pretty much just him so I think he, mm. he also sort of uh, takes Con's point um but then Constanti realizes that Paletsky by revealing the secret of the underground to him is actually giving him something really important. Constanti could, if he wanted to, turn around to any of those German functionaries or SS guards Mm -hmm. and say, hey, over here, look, there's a member of the underground. Um, And probably he would have been rewarded with um, a job indoors or extra food. Um, But Constanti, despite the physical suffering he is um, undergoing doesn't because he realizes that that secret of the underground is something more valuable than a loaf of bread. Um, It's the idea that something greater than themselves can endure in the camp. And that was really one of Paletsky's great secrets um, for why he was successful. He was offering people hope that, um, Mm they that something greater than themselves could endure and it's it's really amazing ray that 
of the thousand or so recruits that Petsky was to go on to make in Auschwitz uh, by the summer of 42, um, not a single one of them betrayed him or the underground, despite the fact that many were to be shot, many were tortured and suspected of being un- in the underground, but they all held to that powerful vision that Paletsky gave them of hope and trust in, in each other and greater ideas than themselves. And it is really such a huge act of rebellion in Auschwitz because what the Nazis were trying to do in the camp, what they're trying to do across Europe mm-hmm. was break people down, break these bonds of family and friendship and you know, nationality right. and people into slaves or, you know, sheep to be led to the slaughter, as it were. And Paletsky was able to show that you could hold to this trust in your fellow man, even in Auschwitz. And I think that's one of the reasons why his message is so inspiring is that even there it was possible to to unite and rebel against the Nazis' vision of the world. Absolutely. I mean, this guy was a leader. And if you once you read this book, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to complain about anything ever again because here's a guy, and, and I love the emotional roller coaster in your book. Here's a guy who volunteers to go to the camp. He goes, I'm going to set up cells. We're going to get information out. We're going to resist in any way you can. And very quickly, he figures out, I'll be lucky to even survive, much less do any of these things. There's random violence. There's random deaths. And you, and you write about several jobs he had, because I think he figured out pretty quickly, if I'm useful, I'm less likely to be bludgeoned just because some guard is bored or whatever. But despite the odds, he does set up cells. He, he does recruit people. He need, actually does get information to the outside world. So of everything that's going on, I find that all, um, all that's amazing. Can you tell us how he got information to the outside world? Yes, for sure. It's... Uh just thinking about that scene yeah. in the camp where they're, you know, standing in the Volkhov Square. Mm-hmm. They had to do three times a day, morning, noon, and evening, you know, beaten up, starving. And the idea that anyone could get a message, you know, under the noses of the Nazi guards from behind the barbed wire in occupied Poland all the way to the Allied commanders in London seems right. absolutely extraordinary and yes. I guess one of the things that you know Kletsky is so brilliant at in the camp is just problem solving he is just always figuring stuff out it's like every time the Nazis come up with some new you know horror he finds some way to overcome it and to in the end report on it and tell the world about it and sometimes he was able to pass on messages to um, prisoners who were released from the camp. Um, they couldn't write anything down because that would have been too too dangerous in case they were caught. So he would compose these sort of oral messages um, to pass on um, to the underground in Warsaw and that they would then um, arrange for those messages to be couriered to, to London. Um, but what, what Persky discovered is that as 
the scale of the murder increased in the camp. Um, indeed, as um, it transitioned from being a concentration camp for Polish nationals to a extermination center for Europe's Jews, mm-hmm. uh, the the number of dead was just it was too much to you know to memorize and keep in your head, and to start. Um, secretly recording um, the the dead and arranging for more elaborate ways to get these reports out of the camp. And I'll just tell you one now, which mm-hmm. is just sort of it captures the sort of brilliant creativity of Paletsky in these moments. Um, he, the Holocaust is just beginning in Auschwitz. It's you know just a terrible terrible moment to to be there. Paletsky found a way to get um, eyewitness accounts of what's happening in the gas chambers back to him in the camp. So he knows exactly what's what is going on. He's got um, he's infiltrated the SS clerk's office in the camp uh, where putting down the um, the numbers who are arriving each each day to their to their deaths and he's secretly having these copied he now needs to get this extraordinary terrible information out of the camp and so he comes up with this plan with some of the other prisoners four of them arrange to break into a ss warehouse beside the main camp mm-hmm. where our uniforms german uniforms kept these four men dress themselves up then as SS officers, and then they proceed to march over to the commandant's garage where one, a couple of his cars are. Right. They mechanics to give them the keys, and then they rev up the engine, drive up to the main the main gate. Uh, they give a Nazi salute to the guard inside. Think so. These are SS men on urgent mission to uh, to wherever, and opens up the gate, and out they drive. And it's um, you know one of the most extraordinary, I think, from any concentration camp of the war. And then when you think that this isn't just some incredible daring do story, one of those guys has got Paletsky's report on the beginning of the Holocaust in Auschwitz. It, mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 an extraordinary moment, I think, in in world history um, that this was the way in which that we managed to learn outside the camp what was happening in Auschwitz. And I tell the story then of what happened to that report as it gets to gets to Warsaw and then makes its way across occupied Europe to reach the Allies in London. And you know, I think it's it's one of the great achievements of the war that Paletsky was able to get his reports out of Auschwitz and into the hands of the Allied commanders in London. Wow. Uh, several reactions. One, obviously, fortune favors the bold. I mean, I could never have the courage to do something like that. But two, I mean, yeah, and so the information does get out, and it's going to take a while, but it does get out. And correct me if I'm wrong, was was uh, Vitold actually 
asking for the the camp to be bombed or or maybe just to target the Germans. He was trying to get something very um, actionable to happen, but obviously because of distance and a lot of other reasons, the, the French and the British are eventually just the British aren't able to accomplish anything yet. So I, um, I, I was able to track down Pelsky's very first report from right. that he composed about a month um, into his time in the camp, and it was carried to Warsaw by one of these released prisoners, and um, no one had been able to find this report, because I think a lot of historians have just assumed that because it was an oral message in this case, that it must have been uh-huh. lost. Um, but I was, with my researcher, uh, Marta, we were able to track down the messenger's family in Warsaw, um, and... Um, they had no idea that their dad had played this role as the first witness to the horrors of Auschwitz on behalf of Paletsky. Um, that happened a lot in my research for this book because of this communist attempt to silence history at the end of the war. The family, though, were able to tell us the name of the man that they uh, that messenger had stayed with and it was the name of that man that allowed us to then sift through these hundreds and thousands of reports in the archives in London to find the one folder um, that had within it Paletsky's report as had been written down word for word um, in Warsaw and then smuggled across Europe to finally reach the Allies and in that report was this plea that gave me goosebumps when I first heard it. And um, I, I remember my researcher read it to me over, over the phone uh, she, when she found it in the archive. And she said, Jack, we've found this report. It's extraordinary. And in it, Paletsky says, please, for the love of God, bomb this camp, even if it means killing all of us prisoners, because what's happening here is so terrible. Right. It hasn't stopped. That's in October 1940. That's very beginning of the camp's history. And that's one of the great might have beens, I think, um, you know, what would have happened had the Allies taken action at that stage and um, it wasn't until three or four years later that um, that there was a sort of public debate about whether or not to bomb Auschwitz. Um, Paletsky was calling on the Allies years before that to take action and um, you know I was he, he did that not once but um, over a dozen times, most of his reports from Auschwitz came with some plea to the Allies to take action. And um, you see him trying to figure out ways to persuade them. Like one stage, he says, can you arrange for a, um, from paratroopers to sort of airdrop in, <laughs> airdrop in? That might be, maybe that's something you could be able to do. And then he has an idea of, there should be a diversionary attack on the on the gate on the main gate that would allow them to rise up inside the camp, and he's, he keeps pushing and pushing, and you know eventually he comes to this terrible realization that the world isn't going to take action. Right, it's just not going to happen for whatever reason, and um, 
Um, and you were saying earlier that when Vitold first goes there, Auschwitz is nothing more than a camp just to deal with the troublemakers of the Germans um, now that they occupy this territory. But obviously that changes with the Avanci Conference when in January of 1942, it, it becomes uh, a, an earnest attempt of the Germans to wipe out all of Europe's Jews. But then it gets even more complicated when Germany invades Soviet Union and suddenly a lot of Soviet prisoners are coming to the camp as well. And there's only so much room in this camp. Right. So I think it's, you know, one of the reasons why Kalecki is such an important historical figure is that he witnesses the steps by which the Nazis turn Auschwitz into a concentration camp for Polish nationals into a death factory for Europe's Jews. And it's worth remembering that at the outset of World War II, Hitler didn't have a concrete plan for annihilating um, Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, he, had, he arrived at it through a process of trial and error, steps towards atrocity um, um, in many different places. And Paletsky was the witness to those steps inside Auschwitz that began with this very brutal treatment of Polish nationals that then continued into um, experiments in euthanizing prisoners too sick to work by injecting with various different chemicals to see if they, how quickly they could kill them. Then it extended to gas experiments as a way to uh, quickly remove um, unwanted prisoners. Mm. Uh, some of those were carried out on Soviet POWs that arrived in the camp in September uh, 1941, following the German invasion of Russia. And only then did the Nazis achieve both the moral and the technical capacity to kill uh, on a on a industrial scale, and um, this was also the moment then that Hitler's mind turns to plans to annihilate Europe's Jews. The war is starting to turn against Germany, and he you know, decides to seek uh, a scapegoat um, and and carry out the plan. Uh, the final solution, as you said, at the Fonsi conference from uh, January 1942. And um, by the summer of that year, um, the Holocaust has begun and trains from all over Europe have begun arriving in Auschwitz at a special new facility built just outside the main camp called Birkenau, which was to be um, an extermination centre for Europe's Jews and um, special gas chambers were built there for that purpose. Wow. It, it, yeah, it gets to the point where the Germans get very efficient at it and they're able to kill at least 2,000 people a day. So uh, so the, the Germans are getting better at it with their experiments. Now, um, so we were saying earlier that Vitol doesn't even know if he's going to be able to survive this, much less carry things out, but but he does eventually start to learn the routine of the guards and and how to how to play the game, if you will. He does several different jobs. And um, 
But there's going to be a moment where they're actually going to take the fight, to a degree, back to their own prisoners, their own guards, excuse me. Um, can you give us an idea of what some of the things they were able to retaliate? Because, again, like you said, the outside world is not coming, and we're not even sure if the Jewish underground is going to be able to help with this. So if anybody's going to strike back at the uh, the camp guards, it's going to be the prisoners themselves. So Pileski, um takes this decision mm-hmm. to begin assassinating SS officers in the camp. And it's one of the most extraordinary acts he undertakes. Yes. It's so crazy. What, you know, how can you keep the secret of the underground while simultaneously killing off um, you know, Germans around you? It's, it seems like it's incredibly dangerous, but yes. he hits upon this brilliant plan. Um, and that is to use some of the horrors of the camp against the Germans themselves. Um, there are lice everywhere um, in Auschwitz, um, mm-hmm. covering the prisoners at all times. They're constantly sort of itching and scratching because um, they're not able to wash properly. And right. these lice carry a disease called typhus, which um, is a horrible fever that can often lead to death. And... Um, Pelecki hits upon this brilliant idea of capturing some of the disease-bearing lice in vials and then um, sprinkling those lice on the jackets of SS men. Um, There's not much contact between SS men and the prisoners, partly because of the the dangers of of disease. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of places where they um, do get to um, meet. One of them is in um, the SS hospital outside the camp where there's a um, prisoner janitors are meant to keep it clean. And one of those janitors is Paletsky's man. And he takes a vial of lice and um, and there's a cloakroom when um, he sprinkles uh, those lice um, over the jackets of the SS men. And their very first target is um, one of the real monsters of the camp, a man called Siegfried Schweller, who was an SS doctor who actually pioneered the use of gas to kill prisoners. And um, two weeks after sprinkling lice over this man's jacket, um, Pletsky and the others learned that this um, doctor has gone down with typhus and has died. And wow. there are not many moments of revenge in Auschwitz, but that is surely one of them. And, um, you know, for for the underground, it was, you know, a moment, a real morale boosting moment, that sense that they could strike back and that they could have uh, a function in, in the camp. And, you know, and Pletsky and and others continued this campaign against some of the worst worst offenders. Um, and I think it helped keep their, their spirits going during the dark months that lay ahead. And, and, their, and their spirits are very important because, and uh, I kind of skipped over this, but earlier in the book, uh, and you won't be surprised by this, dear listeners, there's one point where Vitold is like, I can't do this. And his spirit is almost broken. He, he got sick. I think he was in the hospital. But the point is, even he at one point um, thought this was more than he can do. And now he's bounced back, obviously, and they're being proactive and getting back uh, revenge. Um, yeah. So again, just another 
uh, courageous leader who's obviously in motivating others to be to be brave as well. Uh, I want to skip a little bit more because I want to leave it for the readers. But you were mentioning the Soviets being invaded by Germany, and at first, yes, it's going well for the Germans until it's not. And uh, I think it's um late forty two, early forty three, where the Nazis are now able to kill about four thousand people a day. So so they've really ramped up. Uh, what's going on in Auschwitz. And because the Germans had said, we are no longer going to do massive killings for anybody to us because someone might escape because they were afraid of what reprisals would come from Soviet Russia, who had a bunch of German prisoners. Since they're not going to do massive killings, I think Vitold is like, okay, now's our chance to get out of here, knowing that they're not going to round up 50 or 100 people and shoot them. Now we need to make our escape because obviously the chances of surviving this are getting worse day in and day out. So- um, in the autumn of 1942, the Holocaust is in full swing in the camp. And mm-hmm. Kletsky, um meets a new arrival in the main camp. He's a member of the Polish underground leadership in Warsaw who's been arrested and right. brought there. And Pilecki sort of collars him and says, so, you know, what's happening to my reports? You know, yeah. you know, where's, when's the uprising taking place? When's the bombing happening? Tell me. And the man just looks at him and says, well, we figured all you guys in Auschwitz were just a bunch of goners, so we didn't really think that wow. anything was really necessary. And it's an bl- absolute blow to Paletsky. I mean, of course, he, it's, he at this stage, he's been almost two, over two years in the camp. And so he knows that something is amiss, but to hear it... Um, straight from some uh, from someone from the headquarters is uh, is a real blow and of course this being Paletsky, um you know he rallies and turns that bitter disappointment into his final great feat in Auschwitz um, which is to stage his own escape from the camp and mm. it's it's you know, an incredible story that I tell in the book. Um, you know, Paletsky has this idea that only he at this stage can persuade the allies to attack Auschwitz and stop the mass murder. That's why he has to um, get out and he has to then figure out how to do it. And um, it's, you know, it's another escape that just captures all of his brilliance as a, as a sort of organizer and just brilliant problem solver. Um, I won't go into it in great depth here. because I really, it's, it's, it's a great story and it's covered in the book in, in detail, but right. suffice to say that against the odds, you know, Paletsky becomes one of a handful of prisoners um, who get to break out from Auschwitz and tell the story. And, um, you know, for me, it was, it was an opportunity to try and follow in his footsteps once again to understand how he managed to accomplish such a feat. So I found this, uh, the location, um, at camp. it was a bakery that he escaped from. Um, it was operated by prisoners and they ran a night shift that gave Paletsky an opportunity to uh, escape. 
and I found the location of the bakery no longer exists now. Um, uh, it's actually right now, basically a McDonald's. Um, anyway, so I stood there uh, same day, um, albeit seven plus decades later, um, same hour, and sort of then follow his footsteps as best I could. So I had his report with me and was sort of reading it as I went by torchlight, trying to figure out which way he went. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he had to travel 60 plus miles across Occupy Poland to reach um, a safe house that he knew of outside Krakow. And, you know, I wanted to really sort of discover this route myself and explore um, experience it um, with Paletsky. So uh, my researcher and I sort of followed in his footsteps as much as we could. That involved sort of crashing through the undergrowth outside <laughs> the river. He followed um, from 2 a.m. to dawn. And then in his report, he tells us that's when he actually crossed the river. So we had to find our way across the river and stagger off um, to the woods nearby where he said that he hid out. Um, This type of historical reconstruction allowed me to then, you know, learn about the nature of the area to be able to use some of those details in my, in my writing. Um, But I think what was also amazing about following in his footsteps was coming into these small Polish towns where he found shelter with family and we would often as a, as a reporting technique just turn up and say uh, are there any really old people in this <laughs> so you might happen to know by Germany and, and I remember one village we uh, we said yes yes there are these um, two old ladies you should speak to mm-hmm. and, uh, we met up with them in their house and they said yes we know all about this escape because Vitold and the other two men who escaped with him stayed in our house and they actually wow. stayed in this very room you're sitting in now and had tea from that same tea set that you're drinking from and I just remember thinking you know just having you know been quite sort of you know overwhelmed by you know that moment and speaking to these ladies and they were little kids at the time but they sure remember some details that you know, again all feeds into into the writing of the book and so and I think you know as a biographer you're always chasing after your quarry as it were um, getting little glimpses of their personality um, every once in a while and I think that was one of those moments where you really where I really felt that like I caught up with Paletsky and was sort of sitting alongside him Wow. Yeah, no, that that would have been, like you said, overwhelming at the very least. Um, I want to save the rest of the story. And believe me, dear listeners, there is a lot that we have not covered. But two more things before we go. If I, just for a second, if I could take the spotlight off Vitol and put it on you for a second, because you've written about him in other books. But this book here, A Rebel in Auschwitz, this is for a younger audience. Can, can I kind of ask, what were you thinking about um, or why you wanted to put this out. Obviously, it's a very intense subject, but you purposefully aimed it at a younger audience. Right. And I think that when, you know, as a young person coming to grips with the Holocaust is, you know, a really tough 
thing to get your head around. I know mm-hmm. I with it when I was when I was a teenager, and um, I think Paletsky's story offers a really amazing way for young people to engage with uh, World War Two because Paletsky shines a light in this darkest corner of world history. Um, He is this inspiring figure who is not a victim of the Nazis. In fact, he refuses to be a victim. He's a protagonist who takes Mm -hmm. through the camp. And I know in my research, whenever I would come across some really disturbing or horrific incident that would affect me, then there would Paletsky be you know, offering some solution. He was himself inspiring young men, some of them just teenagers, um, to rise up against the Nazis, to have the courage to witness uh, these crimes and to pass on word to the outside world. And I think there's something really powerful in that for us today, um, especially for, for young people coming across this story that, Mm-hmm. He a light in this really dark place, and so whilst I know that this is tough, tough material to deal with, I also really feel that Paletsky gives us an opportunity, um, gives us a mission to uh, follow in his footsteps and take courage from his incredible heroism in Auschwitz. Absolutely. And if I can add on to that, um, you said in an interview that if resistance was possible there in the camp that he had heard about, what wasn't possible? So again, just it's all it's all relative. Um, if you ever need a moment uh, of thinking, you know, if you ever have a moment of thinking you can't get through something, just think about Vitold and Auschwitz and how he actually became proactive. So Again, uh, just an incredible person who, you know, like you, like you were saying earlier, to look at him, you wouldn't be thinking Arnold Schwarzenegger, hero, courageous, whatever. But he certainly had what it took on the inside uh, to take on one of the worst regimes in, in world history. Right. And I, I, and Ray, I think there's, um, you know, we can talk about his great bravery and courage, but mm-hmm. I would encourage us all to like focus on that first moment of recruiting in Auschwitz and that sort of very simple human quality of Paletsky's that actually we all have in ourselves, which is to trust each other. That's kind of what made Paletsky special in Auschwitz, that despite the whole machinery of the camp trying to break prisoners apart, he refused Mm -hmm. and trusted those around him. And I think poses us a challenge today. Do, do we do enough to trust those around us? Do we, you know, trust people who have different views to us to actually right. do the right things for our community, for our societies? And, you know, I think that's a really powerful message because it doesn't call on us to be superhumans, um, mm. who can be a, a superhuman, but it does call on us to like trust one another. And I think, um, you know, I just, that for me was one of, was a really powerful takeaway from Paletsky's story that I wanted to share. Well, Mr. Fairweather, thank you very much for being with us and thank you for the book and for the audience to know that I also did listen to the audible version and the woman who did the reading was brilliant. She got all the accents, the, the names, cause there's what Polish names, Jewish names, Soviet names, German names. She did a great job reading it. And that might be something you want to 
think about for a child who wants to know more about this episode and our period. But Mr. Fairweather, again, thank you very much for your time. And I'm looking forward to your next book. All right. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me.